You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with John Tory. John is an assistant professor of philosophy at Buffalo State University. He's interested in African-American philosophy, social and political philosophy, and philosophy of education. He writes about how black Americans are recognized in society and the effects on their right to rectification. In this episode, we talk about reparations, the role of public apologies, what kind of justice is needed for African-Americans, and so much more. Hello, John, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me, Maisha. Thank you so much for coming on. So let me first start off with this question. How did you get interested in philosophy? I had an English teacher my junior year of high school actually told me I had a philosophical mind after an autobiography assignment I did. And I remember asking her, I don't really know what you mean by that. So she um, she and I actually talked like for a year. So I was junior year. So the rest of junior year and all through senior year, she ended up being one of my mentors and kind of helped steer me into thinking about philosophy, and not really as a discipline, but more as a practice. And I think that's why it it worked for me, and 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 she helped it appeal to me. And then- so this sounds. Let me let me just pause pause for a minute, John. This sounds strange. So if you were talking about high school. I think I'll probably be a little bit more sympathetic and much more sympathetic or understandable of it, of it happening in college. But I've never heard anyone kind of allude to the fact that they had a junior high school teacher. Was she was she a philosophy major? Oh, oh, I was a junior in high school. There we go. That's on me. Oh, okay, okay. But her husband was is a, uh, a philosophy major at Brown. They met at Brown. And so. I actually saw her after I defended my dissertation. So I, I, I made sure to get back to St. Louis. I wanted to go see Ms. Skol Giovanni. And she actually told me, you know, I, I knew you were a philosopher from the day I met you because you reminded me of my husband. Like, I was like, I know I've seen this before. And there goes another one. And so she just was able to help steer me, I guess, because she had experience dealing with uh, us philosopher types. And so when you decide to go to college, you just, hey, I'm going to clear the major and just go for it. Actually, yeah, um, I, I figured, <laughs> you know, I was going to be a double major. I thought I would do philosophy and Spanish. Um, I, I take Spanish all through middle and high school and really enjoyed it. And and I enjoyed doing I enjoyed what philosophy seemed like it was going to be able to provide. I figured the worst that happens is I get a degree. I can go to law school and you know try to work that level out or, you know, it's college. I, people switch majors every day. Right. <laughs> so right, right. Um, I figured the worst thing that can happen is I'm a, I'll switch out and. My intro class with Barry Allen down at Morehouse College. I remember I got a B plus, but I knew exactly where I was supposed to be. I was like, "This is <laughs> all of this makes perfect sense." Like I remember sitting in that. What class. was the course? It was the course. Intro to uh, philosophy, and it was an honors level version of it. So, like, what, what, but, but, but how did the, how did the teacher approach it? So, using an introduction introductory courses, you know, you have your traditional, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I wonder what is the what what was the content of the course like for you that made you want to say, you know, I'm down for this. I, uh, he did a great job giving us a scatter shot. So he did it. Well, you know, how we have we always say we have what like somewhere between five and seven branches, depending, I guess, who you're talking to. He, he went branch by branch. So we did, you know, a bit on logic. We did 
So epistemology, we did some social and political philosophy, we did some ethics. Uh, you know, he did a really good job of kind of exposing us to just how wide ranging the different levels of thought can be. And he was doing this in the classroom of a bunch of black guys. So he was making sure to have those kinds of conversations in ways that were were relevant. Right. Like so it it, it made it made reading, you know, Kant not boring and it made doing modern not boring. And it made doing not to say that they are boring. I mean, I know there are a lot of people that love them and kudos to them. But, I, you know, it, it, he made sure to make them relevant in ways uh, to always try to drive home here. Are the you know the big theoretical approaches we're doing and. And then more importantly, here's how this kind of stuff applies. And I, I tried to take that actually with me when I'm doing my intro classes. Like Dr. Allen was definitely a big influence on me in terms of how I teach because uh, he came at it with a lot of kind of with, with, with so much knowledge. But he came at it with a level of care and, you know, uh, to make sure that us students didn't feel overwhelmed and that we felt comfortable, you know, to, to shoot from the hip a little bit and, and try things out. And, to you know, philosophy is a creative endeavor in some ways. And he was. He was open to that. And so that's how I got to learn, not, you know, not to keep on going by what I was learning and seeing Howland's phrases, but he was exposing me both the continental and analytic tradition at an early age. Right. So I was able to see that there's this distinction that people discuss and that there are different ways to do philosophy. And so I guess that's that really helped sell it for me, that this is something I can do because it's not a one. It, it, yeah, it's not a one size fits all. There are a lot of different things and a lot of different questions and you can get in refit. So let's talk about where you've been fitting in for the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) And before we get to that philosophical topic, I think it's important for us to kind of address the history, right? Because I think it's impossible for us to talk about what we're about to talk about without looking at it in a historical context. So let's, let's start with some history before we get to the philosophy. Can you, for anyone who probably are not that familiar with U.S. history or probably haven't made the connections, probably don't see the connections or who probably have been under a rock. Uh, currently and also historically. Can can you describe the historical circumstances that would warrant what we call reparations for African-Americans? And, 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 I, and I don't take this to be a controversial question. You tell me if it is indeed a controversial. I don't take it to be a controversial one. I, I actually think if you were to ask, you know, a random set of people and, and to describe, I'm going to give here, here's a set of events. First, they were enslaved. Just a, just a group of people. We enslaved them. Then we put in multiple. After you know, some some wars get fought, and and it seems to be perhaps helpful to to free them. We'll free them. After that, we don't really know what to do with you, and we've got a, a genuine like issue of how to how to in, what is it? I guess introduce you into society as citizens, considering we just had you as property a week before. We end up having things like black codes and we end up having issues like the Jim Crow laws such that black people are now second class citizens in their own country. And this is all again in the aftermath of having been enslaved. While this is all happening, by the way, we've got voter disenfranchisement happening. So the the reason why people were, uh, you know, uh, marching in the 60s, the reason why the civil rights movement is so famous is because it was. You know, uh, at least in how we talk about it, is it's tied to being able to get black people the franchise so that they can actually have a that we can actually have a voice in how we're how how society is operating around us and be able to advocate for whatever interest we may have. 
So you got voter disenfranchisement, your second class citizens. Well, we end up doing some things like civil rights acts to try to try to cut off the, some of the voter disenfranchisement, at least legally at the federal end. We're, we're still, however, suffering from voter disenfranchisement at the state side. And eventually we end up getting something like mass incarceration, which ends up uh, ultimately pillaging the black community of a number of its uh, members for low level drug crimes that are also that are also being what is it, given slaps on the wrist for all intents and purposes for non-black offenders. And we end up with a scenario where it's effectively been state sanctioned terrorism for the black community in America for a few hundred years. In terms of how people describe the, I guess, the, the argument for reparations, that kind of history, uh, without even talking about, say, mass incarceration. So, you know, they, a lot of people will stop. Um, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but historically, arguments haven't had to include present day forms of discrimination that have continued to plague black Americans. But considering just slavery, the black codes, Jim Crow, voter disenfranchisement, uh, segregation with uh, Brown v. Board, Plessy versus Ferguson that was ultimately overdone by Brown v. Board. And then uh, I want to say the famous phrase of Brown v. Board is uh, with all due with all due speed, something to that effect. So desegregation has not really fully taken effect by any means. We're seeing that we've got systemic problems that have been overwhelmingly plaguing the black community. It has not been our fault. It's been done to us in a way that requires rectification in some way, shape or form. And the way we talk about rectification in this instance has often been through the language reparations. So, so simply what you're saying here is, yes, it's some historical stuff. and We can, we can take it back to, 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 to slavery. And then you have post-slavery, so you have Jim Crow, and a continuation of even after the civil rights and the victories of the civil rights, you still have this kind of disenfranchisement that's happening in, in the African-American community. So it seems like as much as we're talking about history, it depends on how you define history. If history was two weeks ago <laughs> or <Right>. last week, <laughs> right, we can take those to be historical circumstances that some would say would warrant reparations for African-Americans. So this this leads me to kind of let, let's talk about the history point just a little bit, because as you're talking about history and I'm thinking about in a linear uh, fa- fashion, I'm thinking about, OK, you have slavery and then you have this thing called reparation. I mean, I'm um, sorry, reconstruction. Right. Or and even the whole idea around uh, reconstruction with the whole uh, some people are probably familiar with the terminology of 40 acres and a mule. Right. And then someone may consider like you, like you talked about kind of the victories of the civil rights era. And so so those things, reconstruction, that the, the acts that were passed during the civil rights era and even the whole notion of 40 acres and, and a mule. Were those historical attempts at, at remedying these these circumstances? Are they different? So I just want you to kind of put. Some meat of bones. We have these historical circumstances. And I wonder, as much as we're talking about reparations today and have been talking about it for the last 30 or 40 years now, what were some of the first few historical attempts at, at remedying the situations that you thus described? So, yeah, the, the Sherman 40 Acres and a Mule, what is that? It's like field order maybe 15 or 16, I want to say. Uh, don't quote me on that, historians. But uh, that, that 40 Acres and a Mule claim is definitely the, the beginnings where we find some sort of explicit recognition that there is a community that has that that we owe a debt to that needs to be paid in some way, shape or form and not merely in, say, a symbolic way with like a thank you card in the mail to all your, your, your work you've done, black people. Right. Like that's that's not going to get the job done here. So uh, the, the Sherman idea here of providing, say, 40 acres 
is to be able to provide uh, black people with the space and particularly the land. And, and, and something that, that I think is really important about 40 Acres is it's tied to land ownership in a way that maybe 200 years ago, we might not have been as aware of how important ultimately for wealth building in America, property ownership ended up being. So being able to just so so that that, that Sherman's offering property is, as a as a you know whether he knew it or not as a form of potential wealth building for this community I think kind of sits in the background when people are talking about reparations because it is you know it, it's it's in part a response to a lack of wealth so one of the ways to try to respond to that is to provide some wealth uh, so forty acres and a mule is I think the earliest instance uh, Henrietta Wood uh, boy I want to say around the turn of the century turn of the nineteen hundreds she was able to sue for compensation for her, her being enslaved. And I want to say this is in the state of Ohio and she won. And I think she got like $2,500, right? So she actually won filing for this. And uh, unfortunately it never set a trend of any kind, whether, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure whether or not uh, other black persons tried to also file suit and they also, and they may have gotten buried or ignored or if, you know, the courts just decided this wasn't, you know, this was a one-time kind of deal, but Henrietta Wood actually sticks out to me as a, a genuine historical circumstance where some sort of reparation was trying to be paid for the, the circumstances of having been enslaved. But more more recently, I suppose, depending on who you talk to, people like uh, I've read John McWhorter say this uh, in the past. It's you, you can see things like was the National Community Reinvestment Act is a form of reparations, just in another name. And uh, the Civil Rights Act is a form of reparations in just another name. And as opposed to doing uh, specifically tied to, say, economic gain in terms of we'll, we'll provide you with cash or with property, instead we'll change the, uh, the legal circumstances so that you have actual access to opportunity for those things. So, uh, I, I, again, because reparations is such a nebulous term in some ways, like everyone knows it's tied to money, but apparently it can be doing other things that isn't money or that aren't money, I should say. It can, depending on how you're looking at it, you could see that there have been a number of different uh, historical attempts. Uh, I mean, some people even consider something like affirmative action to be a form of reparations for harms done to black, uh, to black Americans because its ability to presumably help clear clear hurdles for black people to be able to gain access to employment positions that they had long since been denied. So, so again, I, um, there, I, I think we can look at reparations, depending on the lens that we're looking at reparations through, we can either see that there have perhaps been far too few genuine attempts to try to, you know, repair this relationship. And depending on, uh, if you're looking through another lens, you might think that there's been plenty of attempts done, particularly in the last, say, 50 years, to try to uh, shore up those gaps. And shout out to Clinton for his apology as well. I shouldn't say shout out. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, in terms of you know historical moments um, that are trying to at least respond to harms done by uh, sanctioned by, say, the U.S. government or, or, or states on its behalf, you know, those even though even something like that, uh, uh, I want to say that the, the apology for the Tuskegee experiment, for example, that's uh, that may, depending on how you view reparations, serve as part of the reparatory process. Is reparations and rectificatory justice the same thing? If not, or if so, a little bit, what exactly is the relationship between the two? Ooh, I love talking about this concept. So I will say <laughs> shout out to Rodney Roberts for this one. I, I learned about him in grad school thanks to Bill Lawson and 
this was the, the thing that really helped. What was it? That you get out of your dogmatic slumber. You know what I mean? This is the, the rectificatory justice really helped kind of spark me up about how, how, how I can talk about this particular concept of reparations. And so reparation is a part of rectificatory justice. Uh, to put it differently, reparations claims are in themselves claims of justice, right? A wrong was done that requires some sort of compensation, at least how we talk about reparation, requires compensation or at least repair. You have to do something to pay back the, the, the moral debt that you've caused. Rectificatory justice is specifically designed to work when somebody has provided, someone's harmed you in such a way that there is that debt to, that debt to pay. But rather than just focusing on reparations, it includes other important aspects that I think we think of when, it, when we think about rectifying the whole of the injustice. So the relationship between rectificatory justice and reparations is that reparations is one part of gaining rectificatory justice. It has actually four different component parts that, you, that, are, that are as needed, right? So an apology is always needed when you've harmed somebody, right? Part of repairing the harm is acknowledging that you are the person or the entity that has caused that harm, that it has, that it is a harm that you have caused and that you should not, not should feel say sorry about it, but you recognize that you have done something to somebody that you should not have done. That apology is not about whether or not you feel guilty or sorrow. It's, uh, it's more of a explicit recognition of what's been, of what's, of what's occurred your role in it and how you recognize that it was a wrong thing to do to that person, entity, group, et cetera, et cetera. It also requires uh, potentially, um, what is that called? Restoration, right? So I, I always use the chicken example. I need to use a different example. So we're going to go with, uh, I'm not creative right now. We're going to stick with, uh, you know what? We're going to go with books. We're going to go with okay. books. Here we go, right? So I've got a lot of books because I read a lot. So I got a lot of books. There we go. If somebody were to take some books, right? They come into my house and they take some of my books and I find them. I want you to say sorry, right? I want you to apologize because you, I need you to recognize what you've done. And then you should restore to me what was mine. Give me my damn books back. Oh, I hope I'm oh, profanity. Like, oh, oh. <laughs> you good, you good. Okay, you all good. right. So, you know, give me my books, right? Give, give me back my stuff. <laughs> that might not be possible, right? Like, so say that person gave that book away, right? So they... They had my book. They read it. They thought it was trapped. And so they, they, they tossed it on to somebody else, said, you try it. So they can't restore to me my book. They could then compensate me for the book. And that's uh, specifically where reparations and rectificatory justice are working together. When we're thinking of compensation for harms done, we're still thinking about rectificatory justice. We're just thinking about one branch of it. That's I think that's kind of one way of uh, describing that. Right. We're, we're still inside the umbrella of rectificatory justice. But the I think the benefit of rectificatory justice is that it focuses us. It focuses. The the steps on what to do next in the aftermath of harm, they're focused on how do we repair the whole of the injustice and. I think just to focus on compensation, if we were to just focus, say, on reparations, that might miss a couple of other things, like the apology, like restoration in some instances, right? So there, you know, perhaps there had been 
you know, I, I was about to say we can imagine a world. We don't have to imagine a world. There have been plenty of you know, seizures of, say, black property. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and that uh, the case of reparations uh, some years ago was one of the things he was highlighting was there had been effectively you know, either theft or felonious practices done to black homeowners and black property owners. You know, restoration is potentially trying to get some of that property back to those people. Right. That's I wouldn't want to lose something like that, I think, with just uh, with just a work with just a focus on the reparations. That, uh, but but I think that's why rectificatory justice is so much. I don't want to say so much more richer, but it just allows for so many more ways to try to uh, to shore up that injustice. So let's talk about you were talking about how, you know, reparations just is not the compensation. However. When people hear the word reparations, they're thinking about that money, right. right? So oh, traditionally, yeah. and I think that's, and I think that's the thing that makes it, that makes it very, very controversial, right? So it's not just, I mean, I think anyone with any kind of, of, of moral intelligence of some sort, if someone does a, a wrongdoing towards you, they most definitely will agree that perhaps an apology is warranted, right? Or some kind of a repair is warranted in that sense. But what would be controversial, what's controversial is the money issue. Right. And, and, and it's not just the money issue. I think for lots of people, it's how do you distribute who will get it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So let, let's talk about the traditional kind of understanding of reparations or rectificatory justice as just consistent or being about money. And I want you to explain for us, because there seems to be a tradition in African-American thought as well as philosophy about these kinds of arguments that are made. So can you explain some arguments that have been offered up to justify economic demands? And I believe you call these arguments rectification as compensation. So what are the arguments? What are, what are, what is the support to these these claims of, of compensation? So, again, it, uh, it goes back to the distribution of wealth and uh, how much has been accumulated over, say, this last 150 year period we've lived in. That's gone to specifically white persons who, uh, as opposed to not just more of the more of the American community, but specifically black Americans who have been working as hard as they can day and night on a daily basis uh, and can't seem to gain any sort of economic foothold. So we'll see people, they tend to resp- uh, they tend to argue, uh, thinking of folks like uh, uh, William Darity, for example, they'll look at the economic disparities between black and white Americans. And we'll notice that, well, we've got things like employment discrimination. So black people can't get jobs. Well, it's tough to, tough to earn a living if you can't get a job. We've got wage discrimination. So even if we do give you a job, we're cutting your legs off because we're not going to pay you as much as uh, your white counterpart who's working the exact same job. Oh, and by the way, you probably will have had to have been twice as qualified to earn that job. We're going to pay you less than your white counterpart to do. But there was one other thing. What's my... Oh, so beyond just employment discrimination, we've also got housing discrimination. So I want to say Elizabeth Anderson... Uh, and like the intro to the imperative integration tells a story about her and her family trying to find housing uh, somewhere in Michigan. And the realtor was effectively being, I don't want to say racist. I, don't, I, I, I can't, can't make that kind of claim, but was, they were actively steering, steering the family towards, you know, towards white neighborhoods, right? like explicitly towards white neighborhoods and describing the black neighborhoods as, you know, they're, they're roach infested and they're terrible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there has been, uh, what is, and as well, can throw in something like redlining. So we're going to make it even harder for black people to be able to own homes. 
at every turn, there has been an economic disenfranchisement that has been um, a result of the systemic uh, the, yeah, the, the systemic injustices committed on Black Americans. Uh, throw in mass incarceration, so now when you come out of jail, you know it's already tough enough for you to get a job if you're Black. Come out of jail and be Black. It's going to be even harder. It's also going to deprive you of of time of your life where you can actually go try to, again, earn a living because you're stuck someplace, right? And someplace terrible at that. So when we let you back out, we don't have any good systems in place to help you be able to uh, deal with the, 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 the expected mental health traumas that would happen when you're stuck dealing with the prison industrial complex. While that's not necessarily, you know, specifically tied to wealth or to the money, all of it seems to not just seems to suggest it's a reflection of the disparate economic impact that oppression, racism, and uh, systemic racism has played on Black people. And it does make sense, I think, you know, like if, if, you, know, if you look around and what is it, Black people have was a, a, like one-tenth of the median household income of a white family. It's like a you know, $150,000 to, to $15,000, something along those lines. It's, some, it's something insane. Then, yeah, it seems like a great way to try to shore up that debt both that moral debt and I, I suppose that literal debt is through some sort of compensation. I think there's, you know, there has been a number of different approaches to what compensation can look like. You know, uh, Darity himself, it was a Darity and, and Darity and Danny Frake did a nice piece some years ago. And they actually listed like four or five different ways we could do uh, reparations, right? And one of them, you know, the, the common way we think about it is the same way we got these corona checks just direct deposited that black people would you wake got, up. You got yours already? You oh, got yeah. yours already? Oh, you saying we? Oh, I need to go check my oh, mailbox. Oh, okay, oh, continue, yeah. continue. Oh, no. See, I continue. direct deposit, direct deposit. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's the way I think most people, when, when they're thinking, when they hear reparations, when they hear reparations for black people, that's what they're thinking is it's going to be a check in the mail. Um, and in fact, I told the story before. Every time I have to tell it, there's a, a buddy of mine whose mom works uh, at some spot back near back near home, back near St. Louis, and she's having some tight money issues because you know money can get funny sometimes, right? Costs money to live, so some months are easier than others. And she was telling one of her white coworkers about this, and she's one of the only black people that works at the job. And so the the coworker looked at her and said, "Oh well, you know don't." How's money tight for you? Don't you get a check? And my friend's mom was like, yeah, yeah, the same paycheck you get. What kind of, what, you know, what check are you talking about? She was like, a check, you know, the, the, the reparations check, the black people check. She was like, no, I don't get social security. I don't get no, nothing else. There's no black people checks. There is nothing. I just get the same paycheck as you. That woman was dumbfounded. She ran down the hall, got another coworker, said, you got to come hear this. Had to, had to inform her like, hey, apparently, Black people are getting an extra check and they and they thinking we get an extra check a month. Well, you know, and you know, what I mean, I think to myself, anybody who's doing man, black people get an extra check a month. You might look at us and wonder, well, what the hell happened to you? Y'all are getting an extra check a month. You might wonder how life has ended up looking so dire when there's it, it really would, I think, like befuddle someone if that was what they genuinely thought. And so I think, again, for most people, when they're thinking reparations. They're thinking a direct cash payment and, you know, like Uncle Sam's doing us an extra tax payment, uh, you know, extra extra tax check a year or something like that. That's not that's not quite right. That question's not quite right. It's not quite happening. I shouldn't say not quite. That's not happening. For anyone listening, black people are not getting extra checks. It's not happening. We don't get them. I wish we did. God, I wish we did. 
And I want to also be clear, I'm not anti the money. I really, you know, I, uh, there is nothing wrong, I think, with arguing for reparations. I think that's the right thing to do. And I think, again, given the dire economic uh, circumstances black people live in and also how important money is for being able to have social and political power in America. Yeah, it makes sense to try to close up the economic gap. So so what is if that's the case, then, John, what is your criticism of the focus on money in regards to reparations? I don't want us to lose, you know, so I guess it's two things. A, if we're going to ask, ask for everything. Right. So when we think about when we think about reparations, we tend to end up getting bogged down. I think you mentioned earlier, like, you know, into the to lo- the logistics, right? The how are we going to pull this off? The Who's it going to get to? I don't want us to get bogged down in those issues because that's not where actually the meat of the matter is to me in terms of what it means to rectify the whole of the injustice. Compensation plays a role and it plays an important role. But what I don't want to have happen, and I I do think this is my concern, is that if we end up having compensation serve as the only thing we need for all the harms we've had suffered rectified to be rectified, then we are getting hush money paid. Like, I want everything. We need to be asking for it all. It shouldn't be a, oh, well, can we do, you know, a direct payment or maybe we should do some sort of like grants for asset building. Or maybe we should do something like, you know, vouchers or no, it's an and it's an and it's an and it's an and. And I think that the more we think about rectification as compensation, it ends up having to be a trade off between different policies or approaches that are all probably necessary to try to shore up the injustice. You said very quickly that is hush money. And and I want you to I want you to motivate that that claim just a little bit more. Right. Because I can see in some ways that it could be um, it's a restrictive way. Right. Of giving people what is owed or what is due to them. Or I can imagine that it becomes a way in which it kind of stops other kind of gains that is important. But why call it why call it hush money? So this is the America I imagine that pays out reparations. We're not uh, black Americans will lose any ability to then say cry foul of something like systemic racism. Because you've been paid already. What more do you want? You've you've gotten this check. How much more are you going to be able to hold us hostage for in terms of trying to have your harms rectified? And I do think as a country, we you know, we don't do a great job of responding to, say, claims of racism. Right. Or taking them seriously. I'm not sure after paying out some sort of reparations payment in some way, shape or form that that concern goes up. If anything, I think that that concern drops. I think it ends up being like a wipe the slate clean. You've been paid off. You've got what you were looking for. And now we're all good. Right. And that's a concern of mine because and, and again, I want the money part. Right. I don't want to avoid compensation. I think that's a key part of rectificatory justice, especially for black people in America. But I also want systemic change as a part of those claims. So if we're demanding for reparation, I don't I think we're demanding too small. We should be demanding for rectificatory justice. Get that apology. Right. Get that. Get that on the books that we know we made some we did. We made some terrible decisions. 
We have cost people their lives. We have destroyed generations. We need to say that, own up to that, and account for that because that helps reinforce that Black people are citizens too, that Black people are people too, and that Black people have been harmed that, and that that harm is worth rectif- uh, worthy of rectifying. So I got two questions that are just dying to come out and I don't know what order to exactly put them in. <laughs> so I'm just going to I'm just going to. OK, so let me let me let me let me ask this one because this one is back in the come first. OK, so you said that you don't want to ignore the compensation piece. Right. But I want to talk about that compensation piece a little bit and I'm going to put you on the spot here. And and then we want to return back to your fuller picture of what you think is, is really needed to, to really rectify these matters. Uh, more than the compensation. So let's just talk about the compensation just a little bit. What is your ordering as far as compensation, as far as what you think is most valuable when it comes to compensation? So these are some things I was thinking about when you, we were talking about 40 acres and a mule. And one of the ways in which you seem to be describing it was that that was a wealth building initiative. And a wealth building initiative is quite different than a check, right? Yes. So it's more, it's more of, I'm not, I'm not, it's more like, oh, this is all I'm doing. This is going to pay, you know, when you spend this, that's it. But I paid my due. But it's very different than giving you kind of wealth building resources in which you will continually be able to get checks continually for yourself and, and for those who, who come after you, right? So you have that. So let's think about the 40 acres in a mute, the kind of wealth building concept that you were talking about. Let's talk about that check. And we can perhaps imagine that that check is one time or that check is continual. I don't know. And then this other piece that you were referring to about um, kind of policies in place or, or opportunities for people to, cre- uh, to be able to compete, right? So in some ways, I wanna, what is, the, what is the, the ordering of things for you? And they can I just propose one? mine? This is my, <laughs> this is my ignorant. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, this is my ignorant. I'm not in the subfield. I have no idea. I mean, I'm familiar with Roberts. I teach about him in my philosophy of race class, but that's the extent that I know about kind of the details of, of this stuff. But I'm going to give you my naive order. And then perhaps you can kind of think about this stuff by attacking and criticizing the school in my order, right? Okay. So, so, so for one, I think the last proposal that I kind of mentioned as far as allowing for uh, opportunities to compete, I don't think that's part of rectificatory justice, right? I think that was what was, that's not part of you repairing the relationship because that's something that you should have, that's, that's something that, Everyone, like even someone who's coming over here from another country yesterday, like they should have the opportunity to compete. Right. So so you giving me what 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 everyone deserves by the fact that they are, let's just say, live in this country or as a resident of this country, whatever, whatever. Like that's 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 not that's not exemplary. Right. Let's just so I, I wouldn't even consider that as an option. I would take that as a given that you will give me the opportunity to compete, particularly economically compete, particularly if this is a capitalist country that believes in kind of these freedoms. Right. So I would immediately take that last part off at the table. And then that leaves me with two to reorder. Of course, I'm going to order the 40 acres in a mule concept, right? I will rather allow um, my community to have the resources to, to create wealth than to get a check. And I, here's the thing. I don't care if that check is continued. That's um, not, not to say okay, that I wouldn't take the check. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying I wouldn't take it. I'm talking about the ordering. So my, my ordering, most definitely, the check to me will come, it will come second. So here's also the thing. I think the, the wealth building opportunities, I may be able to create more than what that check um, is allowing me to have. And I think there's a lot of build up into the wealth because I think you don't just create wealth out of wealth. Right. You really create what we really call wealth, which is more than the money piece. So I just I just wonder what you think about all those things. I so I think your first move is, I think, absolutely right. Right. But um, 
policies that should have been doing what was already owed to us does not that that can't be reparations right get get getting me back to square is not i think the the, the way we're thinking about reparations or in, in, any, in any way shape or form right like you're supposed to I'm supposed to be able to compete, like you said. So I think that's absolutely right. Take three off in terms of how I would like prioritize. Well, I shouldn't say take three off in terms of how I prioritize. I would actually want to make sure that's on the list. It needs to be three. <laughs> it needs to right, be right. three. Okay. But it needs to be understood like this is you doing what you were supposed to do. One and two is you doing what do. Yeah, uh, number three is you doing what you were supposed to do because we were here and we had these rights. One and two is you paying the debt for you not having done what you were supposed to do. I agree with you on putting the wealth building first. I'm also a bit squeamish about it because I don't want to take things out of the hands of black people. Like I, I don't want to, I don't want to impede their agency. Right. Like, and, and, and again, part of me thinks this is like a, we don't have to do the ordering. It can be, they're both one. Like we need, we need the asset building. We need the wealth building. And we probably also need like cash in hand right now in order to help shore up some of these debts. I can I can I can see it where it's both. If I had to say, all right, we can get but that's the other thing. Like if so if someone were to say we can do these things in two steps. Right. We're going to give you some wealth building tools and we're going to give you some checks. We just can't do them both at the same time. I might be inclined to go checks first. <laughs> then the wealth building tools. Now that might be me being ignorant. I'm, I'm come from a blue collar background. Money is not my forte. That's why I talk right. about the philosophy of it, not the money part of it. <laughs> right, right, right. But um, but I, but I, I, I think if if I were to listen to my business friends, they would say, "Tory, take the money." Or not, pardon, not Tory, take the money. Tory, take the wealth. The wealth is worth more in twenty years, and the money is worth what you're working it five. Take that. Take the long term win. And so I think if if we're being if we're being, what's the word, pragmatic about this, if the goal is to try to rebuild wealth that was lost, a monthly check probably isn't going to get that job done in the same sorts of ways that, I don't know, um, I always think about property ownership, right? That's, that's not the only way, but it's been a tried and true way for a while here. There's, I would want the wealth built. I, so yeah, selfishly, I'd say, yeah, give me the check, give me the check. But I think if it was a community decision, yeah, I would I would be arguing for the wealth building as the future. Uh, but but I'd be I'd be you know I'd be really feeling bad for the the multitude of Black people who would have been counting on that money for say the next five years that they won't see, but they'll get those checks coming in in ten. That's where I'm like, man, like I, it makes me squeamish. Like I don't think I, I. That's another reason why I want to to widen the scope. Right. Like when we're thinking about it, it just doesn't have to be an either or. But I, I do I do see the practicality of in policy. You know, you can't get them both at the same time. I, I I think I would argue for the wealth. It's right. I mean, I think I think one of the things I was thinking about is not necessarily which one I want first, but which one was more valuable. And and I, I was just thinking that the wealth building seems more valuable. Of course, we know anything about wealth building. It takes time to kind of, you know, kind of generate profit. So, of course. It'll make practical sense for the checks to, to come on, keep coming right? <laughs> until, you know, every to turn profit on, 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 the, on the asset. But I was just thinking about as, as far as far as value. I can't end a conversation about reparations, particularly in the context of, of African-Americans, without asking you this question. And uh, I, I, I'm dying to know how you're going to respond. How do we settle who gets it? 
So the linear history that you were drawing had to do, um, you started with slavery. Now we know there's a lot of, of Blacks in the diaspora that went several places in the Americas. But since we're petitioning the American gov- government, right, we're talking about those who, you know, as far as history contracts back to uh, Africa, or at least slavery in the shadow slavery in the context of, 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 of United States of America. And so if we can start historically from there, right, it seems like the easy answer is where those who are the descendant of, of enslaved Africans who landed in the United States. OK, but your history didn't stop there. You continue. You talk about Jim Crow. Um, he talks about mass incarceration. So it could be the case that I have immigrant friends, let's just say, who came from the Caribbean, who came in the 50s, who are generationally victims of Jim Crow. All right, let's include them. OK, bet. Sounds good. But then I have immigrant family who came from Nigeria, who immigrated to the United States in the 80s. And generationally, they have suffered from Reaganomics, from all these other kind of race-based policies that took place in the last 30 to 40 years. Is it to say, given the linear history that you talked about and the circumstances and the rectify, do all of them qualify or do we just restrict it to a few? So this is actually the controversial question. The other one out there. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm, but I just wanted to you know, given what you said, what does your what does your claims commit you to? I don't have to be restricted. So I would actually <laughs> I, look, I, I'm trying to. My thing is a lot of different kinds of black people have been getting kicked in the teeth in a lot of different kinds of ways. But I would <laughs> right, what right. I don't want to do is try to restrict who can get a benefit, you know, who gets benefits off of having been kicked in the teeth. So I, I do want to cast that net as wide as possible. I think both of those immigrant families, those 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 persons, just they're, they're in the hat. They count, right? Like you came here in the sixties, you know, when you say came in the fifties, they you can't vote. You know what I mean? Like they, uh, they're not looking at uh, say that person from the Caribbean. Don't let them be dark skinned. They're not going to look at you and say that you that you're not a black person in America and you've gotten the treatment like a black person in America. You know if that's part of your history. Then yeah, this is. This is also you're you're part of this tribe that gets to make these claims. You've received the injustice. I think that's the way I think about it. Is if you've been on the vic- if you've been a victim of the systemic injustice that have been prompting these rectificatory claims, then you're in that group. You could have came yesterday. You, you, you're in that group. OK, yes, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to that's what I was going to ask. So. So. OK, 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 OK. Somebody's probably going to so think- like there's not enough money for everybody. I'll be like, they just printed out two trillion dollars <laughs> right. and gave us all twelve hundred dollars out the blue because because the economy was doing badly. Yeah, I think right. they can make the money. I think they can find the money. Right. That's not, that sounds right. That sounds right. Can you talk a little bit more, particularly for people who let's just say you included someone who came in yesterday? And I, I want you to elaborate just a little bit more before uh, we close out this segment about kind of your proposals. And you, so you talked about the apology. You talked about compensation. It's not all that rectificatory justice includes, but it also includes it, it also includes compensation. I want you to talk a little bit more about these policies beyond kind of the policy that I was talking about in, in regards to create an opportunity. Because a lot of this sounds like some of the arguments also that the abolitionist um, activists are also making, right? That to abolish prisons also require uh, to kind of uh, create these kind of social policies so that people, you know, would not commit the crimes that lead them into prison. So I wonder if you could just elaborate more on, on, on social policy. So if it's so if it's the case that if it, if it seems like if it seems like the case that like, OK, what rectificatory justice involves and particularly if um, injustice still exists up into this day or discrimination or racism still exists, what is it should be done on a policy front? to continue to rectify? Because it seems as if, as you were talking, I mean, compensation seems like if we're talking about this one check, 
it seems like respiratory and this one apology, right? It seems like this is something that one can do um, in a moment. But but it, I, I'm getting the itchy suspicion that rectificatory justice is, is, is always living. It's always alive. It's, it's, it's something continual. It's, it's always in motion. It's always in movement. And if that is indeed the case, you know, I, at a point, I'm going to get tired of hearing the apology. And then maybe I may take for granted the check. So what is that other continual thing that is happening? And, then I, and I'm imagining policies, but you could be imagining something else. So I, I think we're talking about the same sort of thing here. Where you, where you mentioned social policies, I'm thinking uh, something along the lines of like like cultural change in a way that really acknowledges, um, you know, at least this this is how I, I tend to pitch it. And I, I, I'm open to being wrong on this. But I do think part of the problem here is that there is really just a woeful understanding of the black American experience for the majority of non-black Americans. And I think part of what those those next steps look like in terms of those social policies is we need a massive re-education in terms of how non-black people understand the history and the present day conditions of black people. Like I, I, I yeah, I, I, I think about that, that, that lady that my mom and my friend's mom was working with, right? Like she, she was not a teenager. She had been through history class, had been living around black people, working with black people. So I'm sure she felt like she knew and was quite justified in the information she had about black people. I'm I something tells me she's not the only one. Right. And so it's when I'm thinking about social policies that have to be connected to rectificatory justice. That apology needs to be something that's not just a, OK, we said I'm sorry. But and I think this is this here is where I think I, I start to actually branch away from Rodney a bit. At least to me, that apology also should be requiring, maybe not requiring, but uh, prescribing methods to prevent this from happening again. Like part of what it is to, and I think this is something that I'm, I'm going to try to argue more forcefully going forward, is that part of what it is to rectify an injustice committed against a person or a group or, you know, system, whatever it is, is to not just to not try to do that again, but to try to keep that thing from happening again. Right. And, uh, I, I think that's how I think that's how to help repair the injustice. Right. Like I. I um, that's one of the reasons why I think people enjoy the, the concept of like truth and reconciliation. And, and they try to like put reconciliation as part of, say, reparation or rectification. I'm not all that I'm not on board with having to reconcile. I think you can I can respectfully not want you around me because of the stuff you've done. To me. We don't need to reconcile. But I do think that there's. There's something important to to taking steps to try to prevent these kinds of harms from persisting. And that's got to be when you say, like, it's going to keep you're going to get tired of that apology. Well, if you're getting tired of hearing the apology, that might be because we've been doing stuff to try to keep it from happening so much. You actually are forgetting what you're apologizing. Yeah, I get tired of hearing I'm sorry for something I forgot you did. We haven't forgot what you did and you haven't said I'm sorry. And you also, and that's not a part of our cultural ethos, right? That's not a part of, uh, that's not a part of how we talk about reparation. That's not a talk, that's not how we talk about rectory justice for black people. That's not even how we talk about justice for black people. Um, we tend to, you know, leave it up to those, you know, these people did wrong and they deserve what they got. And that kind of approach to black people in America by non-black people and by, and by other black people too. Like, it ain't like, it ain't like, we all perfect in how we're, how we're viewing each other here, right? That 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 approach has to get dismantled, and I think that's the kind of systemic change that rectificatory justice requires. 
if someone steals my chickens, like I don't need to have a whole cultural change to to stop the the scourge of chicken theft. But if somebody's been or not somebody, we got systems in place that have been actively disenfranchising a specific group, and 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 to be fair, not the only group, but also this specific group has been getting a specific kind of disenfranchisement done to them over generations. It, yeah, you know, we we might need some other things besides just say. Uh, an apology. We might need some cultural shifts to come alongside that as part of that apology. To put it differently, put your money where your mouth is. That's, that's the way I think about that. That's how that ends up going forward with those social programs. It is a put your money where your mouth is. If this is this was a moral wrong that you feel so bad about, then let's start trying to do things to collapse that because it's still going on. I, I guess that's the other part is social program or, or parts if we're thinking socially like we're talk, we're trying to rectify the stuff that happened, then we're all missing the boat about the stuff we're still doing. And so whatever, however these social programs move forward, they have to be both historically uh, informed, but also contemporarily like engaged. And if, if it can't do both, then it's going to end up missing the boat. Right. You'll end up with the, the hush money snare like, well, well we, you know, we do, I know we did all the stuff to you, but I thought we took care of that. It's like, well, if you didn't change the systems that were in place right now, you know, give us a give us a check right now. It ends up going towards bail money because there are a whole lot of people who are still in jail. And that's not going to stop police harassment. And that's not going to stop, um, you know, uh, uh, worker disenfranchisement and job discrimination. And, and, and the, the, the check or even necessarily just providing those wealth building assets, they don't deal with those systemic issues. And so that that has to be I think that's something rectificatory justice like prompts as part of the the rectifying process is you got to keep this from happening. At least how I read it and how I will how I will probably be arguing for it going forward is it's got to, you know, it ain't just rectified. And you said, I'm sorry. And then like and then walked away. It's what are you doing to help prevent this from happening again? As a, as a grad student, you did work in pre-college philosophy. I think this is a program uh, in which Michael Burroughs, who's also a guest of the Seasons podcast, also participated in. And I wonder if you can explain that work briefly, as well as share with us something that you learned as a result of participating in that experience. Well, I, I don't want to be a plagiarizer, so let me shout out Mike. It was him. Uh, <laughs> he he helped start it out. Actually, it was, oh, God, now, now I will be forgetting somebody's name. I, I feel terrible about it. It was him, another graduate student back at U of M. Uh, they started up the Philosophical Horizons program. Uh, I got to participate in that for almost a decade. And that was it's I used to say it was the it was the most fun in my week, because as much as I enjoy reading and talking with my colleagues and doing doing the day to day stuff of, of being a philosopher, it, there's nothing like going to sit down with younger people, whether in high school, middle school or, or you know, grade school. And what grade, what, what grade exactly were they? So. And see, in Memphis, we went as early as maybe three, three or four year olds at one point. Oh, wow. Um, and as late as high school, uh, late as seniors in high school. Um, and uh, we also at one point, boy, maybe a decade ago, uh, we were doing dual credit, right, with a couple of high schools in the Memphis area. So this is like uh, what the what pre-college philosophy provides, I think, for students is the ability to often get to ask and engage questions that they've got 
that unfortunately, um, a lot of times they don't get to ask in school. And it's not because of, say, teachers not wanting to answer them. You know, it's a it's a time slog and a crunch to get people prepared and get them out and about. And so, you know, the 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 the, the day doesn't always have space for that. And I and I, I tend to feel for those students because, you know, growing up, I was able to have a little bit of space to to think about the stuff that was 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 interesting to me about the world I lived in. And that's one of the things I always try to at least press on the students that we get is that, you know, we get to philosophy is a school, it's a, a school, it's a skill, man. It's a tool in the tool belt to be able to help you look at the world you're living in and be able to try to analyze and make make the decisions you think are the right ones to make regarding how you see how it's operating, whether that's internally with you know, how you see how you work within the world, how you know the world, whether that's externally with how the world works with you and your place in it and and what systems and forces have helped help shape that. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention we also did last summer, summer 2019, up at Buffalo State, we did the Buff State Lyceum and we had uh, students as young as like seventh graders and a recent high school graduate, a guy who uh, just finished high school that May and he came and saw us in July. So still, so, so still doing it. So although you're, you're, you're officially a tenure track professor, you're still... Uh, you're still doing pre-college philosophy. What's, what are some of the things that you've, you've taken away from the experience? I, you know, a lot of the way I teach my intros come from being able to work with those students because they're, they're interested in the ideas. And I think we often, you know, it's easy for us when we get, it, you know, get professional and, you know, we've been doing this for a while. We forget the thing that really like got us jazzed up about it was some interesting idea we ran into in a class, right? Or some interesting idea that somebody like kicked by us at some point. And so I try to, they have a really interesting focus on the ideas and on having conversations about the ideas. And it can take a little bit to get them, you know, get them to go. But I tell young people, when they're ready to talk, they have no, they will tell you everything that they're thinking. And it's been refreshing and, and, and educating, right? I, I've learned probably a whole lot more about how to be a good teacher and how to be um, a good listener and how to read your students, right, in terms of what kinds of, you know, I think something we often forget, you know, you know, particularly for college professors, they don't teach us how to teach, you know, just as a, as a, Unfortunately, as a don't, don't, don't tell your students, don't tell your students, oh. we don't, you know, yeah, but, <laughs> we don't learn. <laughs> right. Well, well, a lot of us are really good at it because we had either. Really <laughs> it is true, but. <laughs> right. But like, but the, you know, we really don't get a whole lot of, and this is, I'm not trying to say nothing about my graduate training because they did give us. I think this is just the problem about academia in general. Right. Like, you know, we don't just get, we just don't get that training. So having to work with the, the, the middle schoolers, the high schoolers, the grade schoolers, it reinforces, I think, really good teaching skills for trying to help make sure you can be in tune with your, I mean, I call it the audience. I don't, you know, I hate, I don't want to say that, you know, the, the sage on the stage approach, I think is not going to be the healthy approach going forward. But you do have to recall, you have to remember that, you know, they're here and you're and you're in the room to try to give them something and they're in the room to try to get something out. of it. And it's important to try to keep that relationship in mind at all times. Like like they're here to try to learn something. You're here to try to learn something, too. And I, I will say the community of inquiry approach to philosophy for children and, and, and philosophy for uh, philosophy with children, it's it's. That's kind of how I do most of my teaching approach at this point. It's, you know, uh, I did the reading, you did the reading. What did we learn? You know, I've I, I got a pretty good idea of what's going on. Like, I can help us get through it. 
but I'm here to see what what did you all pick up out right and, uh, particularly for my upper level courses I'm not I don't start the class at you know here's what I saw is what did you all pick up because that'll drive the conversation anyway like what 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 was important to you ends up being important to me because I can I can do my job and weave you back through any important things I thought we might have missed. But what I don't want to do is miss the things that they thought were important. And pre-college philosophy has a real uh, focus on making sure to kind of be responsive to where the students are and, and meet them there. So let's let's not transition from pedagogy to recreation. What, what, what video? What is the <laughs> video game you've been playing in quarantine? The game? God. The game. Um, the game you've been playing the most. Oh, it's a it's a hard tie, actually. So video games are my outlet for creativity these days. And I, what's the game? I'm a big wrestling fan. <laughs> it's been WWE 2K19. Really? Yes. I did not expect I that. I actually broadcast uh, on YouTube sometimes <laughs> and I have a few people who follow. Like I have, you know, the matches are interesting. What is he? Are you going to share? You going to share the link? What is he going to What should we type in? Uh, Mr. See, Philosopher. You type in Mr. Philosopher on YouTube. You'll see my channel. It's, okay. it's still early. I got to do some editing, but I will tell right, you, right, right, right. The match quality is phenomenal. Right. What is wrestling doing for you during these times? Uh, it's like comfort food. I grew up as a wrestling fan. My, ah, my grandma, I'm proudly from St. Louis. Stan Munchnick had a uh, big time wrestling, um, ah, uh, wrestling okay. and going on in there. And my grandmother, actually, yeah, grandmother was a huge fan of wrestling. So that's kind of how I got into it. And so I, uh, you know, I kind of keep watching the kind of not. You know, it's like a, it's I, like I can still remember watching a WrestleMania over at Grandma's house. She was like, "Go Rock!" because she loved the Rock, and she was screaming, "Go!" You know, she's she's having a great time with it. And Grandmommy's in her age, you know, so it's like I'm, I I uh, I get to watch and you know participate with my family sometimes still, and it's uh, it's all in good fun, all in good fun. It's good wholesome entertainment. There you go. Except for when they do those terrible storylines, but uh, don't, don't don't get me started on that. Well, John, I am grateful that you took the time out from WWF uh, video games, um, or WWE, whatever, uh, to that chat with me about reparations. Thing, that answer, Let me get some cred back. I'm on warfare too, y'all. Like, find me. Right, right, right. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with us. I, I know the audience have, have have learned a lot and have thought about a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Maisha. This was a, a an honor and a pleasure. Uh, happy to be a part of this season. Happy to be on the Unmute Podcast. I am a big fan. So this is like oh, a it's like a career like bucket list kind of thing. Like, oh, <laughs> You're so kind. You're so kind. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.